Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Anthony Malakian, U.S. Editor of Waters, and as always I'm joined by James Rundle, our news editor. Hello. And today we have a special guest, very special guest, uh, Dan Schleifer, CEO and co-founder of Chart IQ. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So today we're going to have a little bit of discussion um, about what it's like to create a startup in this environment and specifically for capital markets firms, some of the challenges around that. Um, I guess maybe the best way to start off with is just, you know, take us up to, I have this idea for a company, you know, you and the co-founder have this idea for a company, what kind of led up to it and then how did you kind of go about that starting process? Yeah, good question. So. Uh, so my my partner Terry uh, Terry Thorson uh, he and I started the business six years ago, and uh, um, it was uh, it was a, a slow start. Uh, he was retired at the time, which is a, a lovely place to be, and uh, mm-hmm. decided to come out of retirement to work you with me. Which is, out of retirement it's like it fails, uh, whatever. You know, <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, I guess go back into retirement. Worst case, you go back to being retired. <laughs> exactly. and I would just go back to being poor. So. Uh, the, um, yeah, so we, we started Chart IQ and uh, we talked about doing uh, B2B, which is what we, we do now, so licensing our charting technology and now other products into capital markets. Um, but it's a very slow path, selling, uh, selling technology. You have to get the technology to a point of maturity, and then the sales cycles are very long. Um, so we tried actually going direct to consumer, um, and it turns out we're terrible at that. Um, <laughs> and it turns out that, sure enough, in, in the, you know, 20 teens, consumers don't want to pay for anything. Right. Um, as so, we know in the news business. <laughs> as, as you know in the news business, indeed. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so we got off to a little bit of a slow start and, and started licensing it uh, to individuals and consumers and then started packaging it and selling it to companies. Um, but companies are very slow to, to buy technology. Uh, our sales cycles even today can be anywhere from, you know, for a small deal to a, a Bitcoin exchange, it might be a week or two. Uh, but to sell into, you know, a sell-side bank or a large asset manager can be, you know, six to 18 months, depending, oh, wow. mm-hmm. um, sometimes longer. Um, and so, uh, you know, you have bills to pay and employees to pay and all that kind yep. of stuff in the meantime. Um, so we started slow. Uh, our business was premised around kind of this mass migration over to HTML5. We didn't know how soon that would happen. Um, so we wanted to not be a flash in the pan and burn through a bunch of VC capital. Uh, so we started really cheap. Uh, we are based in Virginia, so we started in a barn. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in a barn for the first three and a half years of the company. Uh, it's kind of the, the southern equivalent of two guys in a garage uh-huh. is uh, two guys in a barn. Yeah, down in Virginia. Is, uh, where, no, down, just outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah, yep. Yep. So we're out in the countryside in a, in a barn that was formerly occupied by... Uh, the Dave Matthews Band. Really? So Dave Matthews is from Charlottesville. He's originally from South Africa, but the band uh, was formed in Charlottesville. And the management company, uh, when they were first taking off, it's now a huge enterprise, uh, restored this barn. Yeah. And uh, and so it had been unoccupied for years and years. It was really cheap to rent. Um, we paid as much for two desks in a co-working space in Manhattan for two employees that are here, as we did our entire rent for like 2,000 square feet in a barn. <laughs> um, so I like that you have at least, you know, it's like when you think of like the fintech startup, you're thinking like either Silicon Valley or, you know, out here in New York, but it's like, 
you still have that kind of kishi kind of, you know, well, yeah, we're not in one of those hubs, but we did start in a barn, so, I mean, cool. oh, yeah. we've got there's, some There's something about FinTech as well, there. some market yeah. had the same thing that Lance Adler and well, St. Albans uh, started in a barn as well, didn't they? That's it? correct. I did not know that until we were talking with uh, talking with the guys over at IHS, and they were like, well, you know, that Lance started market in a barn. Yeah. I was like, what? Selling CDS <laughs> <things>. <laughs> it's like, so, I mean, that sets the bar pretty high for success, because he's made a lot of money, and yeah. IHS market That's is nice. uh, quite yeah. large, but... I figure if we do half what he did, we'll yeah. be in good shape. You're done all right. Yeah. What were some of, so you talked about that kind of, you know, expanding B2C, not yep. quite really being right, but what are, you know, because I, I think that some of our listeners, they'll be listening to this and thinking, now you, you don't necessarily come from this path, but I, I kind of imagine somebody working at a bank, they have this, as you said, sometimes developing something in a bank and you have this really cool idea, but the red tape just gets in the way and it just becomes this quagmire. And they think, you know, I'll start my own thing. Yeah. You're not necessarily, you didn't take that path that you're not from a bank. You know, you were always kind of on the vendor path. Mm -hmm. um, but what was some of the challenges that you had to overcome in those early days and even maybe now today? Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. So I tend to meet a lot of other founders and especially of younger startups and, you know, help however I can with my network or, or experience and, you know, don't do what I did kind of stories. Um, you do find those two paths, right? So somebody that works inside a bank or an asset manager and they see a pain point and they say, how is there not a solution to this? We have yeah. a whole back office filled with a couple hundred people that do this thing all day. I could write a piece of software, automate that. Mm -hmm. Everybody on the street should buy it. They've got a really great insider's view of the kinds of struggles that happen inside market participants. And then you've got folks like myself that come more from the vendor software side. We know all about how to build a product, how to build a sales team, how to you know build a support organization, all this kind of stuff. Um, but we don't necessarily have that insider's view around some of the problem space. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the the challenges are different for people on each of those paths. Um, you know what I find for people that are starting a bank. If you're sitting at your office right now listening to the podcast and thinking. I know that problem, I can go solve it. Um, my biggest piece of advice would be partner with a co-founder that comes purely from the vendor side, right? You've got a unique perspective and they've got a unique perspective. Um, and that combination, and Terry and I, my founder, my co-founder and I, we don't have that combo, but we've managed to struggle through it anyway. Yeah. But I think the ideal blend is a marriage of somebody that is from the vendor side and somebody that's from the uh, the inside where that pain point was. Um, I think the, the biggest problems facing any sort of capital markets fintech startup uh, is the, the long sales cycles, right? If it takes you six to 18 months to sell into a large bank, well, you had to spend at least a year building the product before you could even get it to the point to get in the door to show it to somebody if you can get in the door. Sure. So you're talking about, you know, potentially, what is that, two and a half years before you actually even close a decent sized deal. And then let me tell you, banks pay really slow. Their procurement departments do not like to cut checks. So you're waiting another three to six months after that. So I mean, you're talking you're about multiple keep the years. Lights in the barn on. So patient, lights in the barn. And patient investors then. You need patient investors, you need cheap office space. Um, and the investors that are out there, traditional VCs and traditional angel investors don't understand capital markets. Um, we could do a podcast all about that and kind of the, the investor perspective of the trader mentality versus the VC mentality is very different. Um, we've been very fortunate to work with 
investors, both our seed investors and our Series A investors, uh, folks like Tribeca Angels and Value Stream, um, Social Leverage and Illuminate Financial, that that's their specialty. And so they get it. Sure. They've got connections. They understand the problems. They understand the market size. The biggest, the biggest thing that we would hear and still hear from prospective investors is, it sounds like a great business, but how big is the market? Mm-hmm. Because right, if, you, if you're a West Coast investor, you're looking at Twitter and saying Twitter has 300 million monthly active users, and that's not big enough to actually keep it afloat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? You're imagining that you need hundreds of millions of users. Um, capital markets, they're like, how many big banks are there really that you can sell to? Like, how big is that market? How many people are there? How many end users? It's like Bloomberg's making six, seven billion dollars a year off of 300,000 users. Sure. But there's like 99.9% engagement of that user base with the products, right? So I mean, that's a different metric entirely you've got to factor in. Correct. But but you will waste a lot of time trying to convince an investor that isn't from a capital markets background that it's worth even trying to service this industry. And, you know, did you ever find it being an added challenge, you know, not being, you know, capital markets firms are kind of firmly in, you know, London, you yep. know, New York, stuff like that. Did you ever find it challenging getting started to get that serious conversation? Or do you think that now for, for fintech startups that there is a little bit of leeway to say, we're going to be in a barn in Virginia and you're just going to have to trust that our product that we're going to deliver to you through a, a SaaS model or, or yeah. hard install or whatever, sure. that that's viable and you don't have to worry about where we're headquartered, I guess. So uh, it's a great question. So I was having a conversation uh, with... Uh, a tech firm, uh, a larger one, not a startup, and they had just moved offices in Midtown. I was like, I gotta ask, what does it cost per square foot in Midtown for like grade A commercial space? And they're like, between two and three hundred dollars a square foot. Mm-hmm. I pay fourteen dollars a square foot. <laughs> so, right, my my cost of office space, my cost of uh, I, I, you know, I can pay a premium over every employer in Charlottesville, be able to attract the best talent, and still be paying 30, 40% less than I would pay for a developer in New York. So there's a huge advantage to that, and investors get that. Now, what it means is that I need to have salespeople in New York and London, and that I personally, as the founder, right, I'm in New York right now, I don't live here. Yeah, exactly. I spend a lot of time I'm between not New York down and to London. Virginia. No. <laughs> We've never once had a customer come visit us. So um, actually, I love Richmond, but yes, a lot exactly. of good bars and restaurants there. But. Uh, indeed, uh, it's a good drinking town for sure. Exactly. Um, so, you know, we keep our development center and our inside salespeople and operations and all that kind of stuff in Virginia, and then we have, um, you know, uh, you've met our salespeople here in New York and in London. I spend a lot of time in those two cities. So investors seem to be very open to that, especially once they see the economics of it. Because mm. well, that's their money you're spending on office space. It is, because well, you, you brought up, but the, every company, we've, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, everything like that, but the, the, the challenge to find talented developers, engineers, um, you know, I got, you uh, had a chance to speak with you and Lauren Gibbs for a story about, you know, teaching coding to younger kids, but finding that talent, somebody like Lauren or, you know, your other developers, you don't find that you're up against it, you know, being down there versus being in New York? So it's, it's a, there, there are pros and cons there. So this comes up because uh, hiring and, and retaining talents is one of the, the most difficult parts of running a business. Um, the market in Charlottesville is a lot smaller. 
Um, now, we're a big fish in a small pond, so we can pay a premium. Um, we can treat our employees very well, pay them very well, um, and, you know, basically not have the competition. If I were based here in New York, I'd be competing with Twitter and Facebook and Uber and you know, all the banks and every, Google and everybody else, and they have effectively an unlimited pile of cash. Yeah. So they can pay anything that it takes to get top development talent. Um, and what we see and, and hear from our friends up here is that you hire that great person, you finally snag them away from wherever, you have them for 18 months, they move on to the next job. Okay. Um, our retention rates in Charlottesville are almost 100%. Uh, just trapped them in down there. Well, <laughs> in the bar. <laughs> in the bar. We look it up every night. Everybody gets their own stall. It's great. The uh, uh, the stalls are a lot bigger than than New York uh, sure, cubicles. The uh, um, but the thing is that people that are are choosing to build a life in Charlottesville, they're living there for quality of life purposes. Yeah. So they're you know even if they're in their twenties and thirties, they're married, they're having kids, they have a dog, they have a backyard, they like being near the mountains. They're living there because they want to. All of my employees know that they can move to San Francisco or New York and be making 50% more. They don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a good fit there. Now, the, the flip side is if I need to hire 20 developers tomorrow, they just don't exist. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, and, and we, because it's a small town and it's a, a great community of, of the tech companies in the area, um, we make a point of not poaching from any of the other kind of tech startups in the area. Um, I don't know that they, they do the same. We just do it. I mean, it's not an agreement. Show me name. <laughs> um, I, you let me know who bobbies you. I'll go exactly. down there and I'll straighten them out. Exactly. <laughs> bring, in, bring in Tony to break some kneecaps. Um, so it, it has its upsides and its downsides. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about just the fintech space in the capital markets? This is... It's, it seems to me like last year was really this explosion of conversation around fintechs becoming a more viable option for banks, for some of your larger stodgy or hedge funds, asset managers. Why do you think that trend is happening? Why are uh, some of these larger firms more willing now to pair up with um, these specialists such as yourselves yep. and you know any any other number of uh, fintech startups. Yeah. And I guess as a corollary, has it become a bit easier to get in the door because of that? I guess that's the... Uh, well, I'll answer that one first. It has yeah. absolutely gotten a lot easier. So uh, we were talking before the podcast, a number of the banks uh, have fintech engagement teams where they literally are creating a team of people that just go and filter through and try to find interesting startups and then parade those startups in front of the units that they think they'd be relevant to. Mm -hmm. um, so they're helping to make that happen, and uh, there's some great conferences and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, like Waters' conferences. Like Waters' conference, absolutely. <laughs> uh, indeed. The, uh, um, the, the, the other part of your question... Just about the just environment, and oh, the, how is that... What, what is yep. some of the reason for this change? So I think there are two major reasons. So one is that the 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 market participants, whether it's buy side or sell side, are finding it's really expensive to try to uh, hire and retain developers in this space. Right? They're in New York and London. They're competing, just like I was talking about with startups, they're competing with Google and Facebook and mm. uh, Apple and Amazon and everybody else. And honestly, if I'm a developer and I'm making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, or that's what I'm looking for, I can go work with the hottest, best technology 
at Google and be working on new stuff that's sexy, that's interesting, that's built in modern technology, or do I want to go and maintain some legacy software in the back office of a bank? Yeah. And so I think they're finding it's it's hard to get grade A talent. Now, we work with incredibly talented developers um, inside these banks. I don't want to in any way indicate that there aren't, um, but I think trying to hire those kinds of people at scale is difficult, and it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. And so I think they're wisely saying, you know, as a result of that, and the fact that these startups like ours and, uh, and others are moving so fast that we can build it faster and cheaper than they can. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, there's still always a build versus buy equation. Um, and oftentimes, you know, developers, including my own engineers by trade, always want to build things. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. Everybody wants to build, nobody wants to maintain. Um, but I think there's finally a recognition that like, hey, these are viable technologies, uh, they're moving really fast, we can help accelerate their time to market. We're looking at MIFID too, it's like, hey, I've got a January 4th deadline or whatever it was, like, I've got to get to that date, I'll do anything that it takes to speed that up, um, and if I can have my developers focusing on the parts that are unique to me, mm-hmm. and buy something off the shelf that solves the part that is common across all of the, the banks on the street or all the hedge funds on the street, I think there's a growing growing uh, uh, recognition of that. Mm. Just by wonder, do you find it, I guess the, the long-term goal for your company, do you find that maybe it might be a little bit more challenging to become a market in today's day and age where you know you kind of start off very small and then through acquisition, keep on growing, growing, you know, your SSC, stuff like that, where you kind of are able to keep on growing and and getting these major, major acquisitions, like, and then eventually an IHS comes along. Is that going to be a little bit more of a challenge since there are so many now fintechs that are specifically entering into the capital market space? It seems like right now, I'm sorry if this, this question is a bit convoluted, but it seems like right now you what you see with you know partnering like with Symphony and with Thomson Reuters and all these kind of companies kind of coming in with their specialties, such yep. as Chart IQ, coming in and kind of building one big ecosystem of, of an offering, I guess, um, versus these companies that, you know, just kind of through their own, they start off with something core, but then they just keep on snatching up and building, 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 become this, you know, giant blob, I guess, of services. Do you, is there a change in that from your perspective into what that long-term goal is as far as I want to keep on growing this and become the next market or I want to eventually partner with somebody else or sell this off to, you know, you know somebody else that's going to be a bigger SSNC or something like that? How do you vision that? Yeah, I mean, I think, so there, there are two, two parts of that. So one is kind of the market dynamic and then part of it is just like speaking for myself, like personality-wise of, of myself and, and Terry, my co-founder. Uh, I don't have that desire in me to be, I mean, I have so much respect respect for Lance, we were talking about at market, Mm -hmm. and like, Lance built a huge, huge thing, starting in a barn, uh, built a huge thing by doing that kind of acquisition and and inorganic growth in that way, Um, and very successfully, uh, I don't personally have the desire to be that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think- Is it still possible to be that? Oh, I think it's still possible, and I think what, I, uh, I thought it was going to happen a while ago, so I, so far I've been wrong, but I still think it's going to happen in the future. 
because we have all this these cool startups happening and each one does their one thing better than anybody else, mm -hmm. right? This is the best tool for this one thing in pre-trade or trade or post-trade or whatever it is, does this one thing in this one asset class and you will start to see those get rolled up. And I think um, I would not be surprised at all to see um, some, some corporates go on basically like, hey, if I bought this company, that company, this company, and that company and stuck them all together, like suddenly that becomes a valuable thing. Mm -hmm. um, or a private equity firm step in and do kind of a roll up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, without, you know, uh, I'll do a little bit of a selfish segue uh, into one of the other topics I know you want to talk about, which is kind of that fragmentation problem. Um, and you and I have talked in the past about kind of the, the, the desktop, right? Because capital markets is still a, you know, Windows PC kind of world. Um, and the biggest problem that we hear uh, from banks and, and, and buy side firms is that fragmentation on their desktop. Right. That everything inside Icon or Bloomberg or Faxet all works flawlessly with itself. Everything on the other screens on their, mon uh, on their, their desk, um, it might be Chart IQ for the world's greatest charts. It might be Green Key or Cloud9 for voice over IP soft turrets. It might be this, that, and the other. None of those things talk to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, again, the selfish plug is, is that's where we've been investing a lot of our R&D and our product ensemble um, that allows you to kind of orchestrate those into workflows. Um, but I think it's that kind of technology that will make it possible to roll these things up together. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how much it still happens. I mean, I was... Uh... Uh, I was seeing a replay trader buddy of mine the other day, and he deals in European markets, and each yeah, market has a pre-trade uh, buddy, I think. A repo was? trader. Repo yeah. trader, sorry. See, that's why I sometimes clarify what the hell yeah. <laughs> But uh, each market you traded had its own interface and its own kind of uh, display, and there was no single kind of rolled-up view of Absolutely. Like, software. It's amazing how it still happens in 2018 when you have this technology. Well, it's it depends on the asset class. Like, we see fixed income in particular is super fragmented mm -hmm. um, just because there was no technology investment really being made into fixed income for so long. Versus equities and FX, there's already been a lot of that kind of consolidation. Yeah. You've got these monolithic things. And fixed income, again, based on what market you're trading, how big of a, an instrument you're trading, is it being traded via voice or electronically, and this platform and that platform, and then all the different stages of the, the trade life cycle, very few of those things talk to each other. So um, for us as a firm, you know, that's the big opportunity that we see in the market right now. Um, we frankly got sick of, of prospective clients saying, we love your charts, they're better than anything we've ever seen before, but we're not gonna buy them because they don't talk to anything else that we have on the desktop. Sure. Um, that's a, a punch in the gut as a startup vendor, and we know that there are a ton of other startups hearing that same message, um, and so that's why we ended up kind of creating Finsamble to, to tie these things together. Yeah, well, I think that we've had a good conversation here. Now, one of my favorite reasons for talking to Dan all these years is not just our conversation about capital markets trends, which certainly, as I think people just heard, is you know he's got some good insights. Um, doesn't sell his product too much, you know. World's greatest charts, of course. Uh, Sorry, that, and that's what we created. That, that just rolls off the tongue. Like I, I swear to God, I probably say that in my sleep. Yeah, it's, I it's, just it, world's greatest charts. Fabulous, they're epic. They're, yeah, the best. But um, the other stuff is I, I always enjoy uh, having conversations about everyday worldly stuff. Now, one of the things that we were talking about before, speaking of things being able to talk to each other is 
the difficulty of uh, the enjoyment we used to have for social media sites, specifically Twitter, and how it really is becoming um, an echo chamber of hatred and just anger and just worry and just no real joy and fun in Mudville there nowadays. <laughs> um, so you would now have stepped away from yeah. Twitter? As I was saying earlier, I've been a—I've never been into Facebook, but I've been a loyal Twitter user, like daily Twitter user, for years and years and years. I don't remember uh, when it was. Back when you still did it via text message, like that's how long ago I was using it every day. Um, okay, Grandpa. I know. I know. Uh, back when I was a boy, we used Twitter via text message. The uh, I had to—I had to cut it out. I went cold turkey. Uh, it's been several months now, and I just. It, it was giving me anxiety. It was, as you said, an echo chamber of, of kind of outrage and hate and hostility. And and I don't, on Twitter, I don't follow anybody that I don't actually know in person. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I was following a bunch of like celebrities or talking heads and they were spewing all this stuff. It was myself and all the people that I know. Yeah. yeah. Right? That was the echo chamber. It was all people that I know. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Dan DeFrancesco, uh, but I, you know, I had, to, had to cut you out of my life. One more about Hillary. Uh, uh, but yeah, I also, in general, just had to go on media diet. It was too much. I've, I've always, on a personal level, like I've, I was that weird kid who like subscribed to The Economist um, and read newspapers. You know, uh, and God I had, bless you, son. I, I was a weird child. Let me tell you, um, and I had to stop. I had to cut it all out, and and slowly. Um, add those things back in. It was like when you, uh, you know, you get an allergy or something, you cut everything out of your diet and slowly add stuff in until you realize what it is that was causing your problems. I've had to do that with media. I cut out radio and online and print and uh, rarely watch TV, but the occasional in a hotel room watching sure. uh, MSNBC just to see what's happening, to cut it all out. Yeah. Well, we've done most of the same thing, I guess, really well focuses, you know, Shifted from, uh, as I said, this echo chamber of everyone being so hostile towards each other, whether left, whether they're right, and then uh, just not following the day-to-day news cycle because it's too depressing and it's too kind of you know. Um, well, for me, after the election, you know, I on for me it started with Facebook because I was a Facebook user, and you know, Facebook was always always it was a cool way for me to still connect because I've lived in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, uh, mm-hmm. you know, suburban New York, and then way way upstate in Plattsburgh. So I lived around the place, you know, friends move. Yeah. It was a cool way to stay connected with people and just hear about their lives without me having to actually interact with them, which I hate. <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoyed that. Once the, the, the whole run-up to the election and after the election, I, I had to ju- I, I cut out Facebook in many, many ways. Just, well, I stopped. Uh, I turned off, like, uh, yeah, you didn't block them, but, yeah, you just turned off unfollowed notifications. Unfollow people. Unfollow people. Muting. Muting people. Yeah, yeah. muting people. Yeah. So I was like, every single day, it's his political rants, and, you know, it's, I have plenty of members of my family that are hardcore right-wing. I have plenty of friends that are hardcore left-wing. I'm like, guys. I mean, I saw family members, like, families breaking up like, online because of it. I was like, this is pathetic. Yeah, guys. when you I mean, see families on, arguing like, yeah, over yeah. stuff in a yeah. public forum like that, I'm like, guys, geez, Take a step have back. some self-respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Save it for the Thanksgiving table, yeah. people. Like, come on. It's like, it's, yeah, <laughs> That's it's the like, traditional venue. Come on. Yeah, I'd tell my mom, i go, never, ever, ever post on my thing because I don't want one of my friends to get into an argument with you or something exactly, like that. Yeah. And then I got to go and deal with this because you talk about my mama. Oh. You know? <laughs> I had to completely lock down my face 
Facebook, so no one can comment on my posts without me like approving it. You yep. can tag me and that kind of thing because there's too much stuff coming through. That and Twitter really is. It. I still find Twitter such a great tool for finding interesting stories that I would not have seen for yeah. getting a good laugh here and yep. there. But I, that's one I've slowly just started to unfollow people that I maybe used to were following, and I was like, okay, no, you know, you're just a little bit too crazy, or you know. So just... what I've heard, and I was talking about this last night over dinner uh, with a buddy is uh, that you can uh, mute individual words on Twitter. So I'm thinking about, really? like, reopening my Twitter, but muting... Trump, Clinton... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would cover 98% yeah, exactly. of it, those two words. Uh, but, like, you know, Mueller, whatever, like, just mute all those kind of political sure. words, and then I could get back to, like, just seeing what my friends are up to in their lives. Yeah. The key is, the thing that's always frustrating... Especially for us, we talk about, Jim and I talk about this a lot, you know, but as people that are in the media and business, you know, we do read a lot. I, I try and still, I, you know, I have my subscriptions to the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I have my subscriptions to the Weekly Standard and the National Review. I kind of get both sides yep. of the chambers there. And so I still get my news, and I don't want to ever be cut out of the news. Yep. That's the one thing that I found that social media was doing. It was making me hate reading actually informed, well-reported. Like, I no longer go to the opinion sections of those. Like, you know, the National Review is, is very much an opinion yep. thought magazine. But they have plenty of report on stories, stuff like that. So I try and just stick with those. And because I found myself just saying, you know, I'm, not, I'm just not going to pay attention to anything. And I don't want to be the uninformed guy either. Yeah. Like I said, as, as that weird kid who was, you know, reading newspapers as a kid, like, I feel you there, and, and that's where I had to, the big thing for me about adding stuff back in after the media diet was, like, the latency issue. So part of it is that, like, something happens, 30 seconds later you see it in your Twitter feed, yeah. and suddenly you're jumping in and seeing yeah. it at that moment, it flashes up versus, up phone or something. yeah, that's... push notification on your phone, versus on Sunday reading, sitting down and reading the Sunday paper and catching up on everything that happened yes. and the the pieces that you read are generally a little bit more well thought out because it's not just firing off kind of... Sure. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. The thing I found was it, it teaches you how, despite the fact that the news is 24-7 and it's immediately available, how much you don't actually need it to be immediately available. If something important happens, you'll hear about it, but often you don't need to read about it, have hot takes in the day. You can wait, as you say, for the Sunday paper for more measured analysis and... Yeah, like the alert systems when there's something happening immediately by you and your phone can tell you, oh, there is yeah. an incident, you know, shooting, yep. something like that happening over here. Mm. You know, I, I, that I can understand that, but exactly. I don't need to know the exact second and then the immediate try for analysis. Was it a terrorist attack? Maybe it was just a guy that was just a drunk yeah, driver just that we had in Midtown exactly. that, you know, just clocked into a couple people and crashed, you know. Yeah, exactly. You never really know, but it's the immediate, yep. we're going to jump to the worst thing ever versus let's take a, a step back, let's analyze this. Even like when you have policy debates, like this this rush to be like, we're, it's the end of the world, we're killing them. Let's settle down. <laughs> this is how policies are created. Both sides kind of hammer it out. You know, it's like we've, we've lost that in so many different ways. So did you feel better like off the dice or did you just feel cut off? I mean, no, I felt much better. Yeah. Like as it turns out, uh, even my, like what I consider a way cut back media diet is still quite informed about what's happening in the world. And honestly, uh, when I was being more intentional about the media that I consumed, it was going back to the things that I really like, like The Economist and mm -hmm. the BBC and getting a bit Waters. more 
Waters, all the important news breaks at Waters. Um, but getting the international coverage and not just U.S. politics that is dominating sure. kind of the, the, the U.S. publications, but like what's actually happening in other parts of the world that uh, I think is A, interesting and B, you know, keeps you informed, but also gives you some perspective on what really matters. Yeah. And, you know, it, we're still, I mean, the three of us sitting around this table, we're all very fortunate people. You know, we have a lot to be thankful for, and uh, politics is, is you know, uh, a, a fun thing to argue about, and it does matter, and it does impact real lives, but at the same time, when you see what's going on in some other countries and in other populations, like, it gives you some perspective on what really matters. And any advice for ways that you found new outlets for Escape? Any new television shows, anything like that you're yeah. interested in? So that's the thing, is that when you're not uh, reading what's happening 24 <laughs> by 7, uh, you have more time for that stuff. And, and being busy uh, running a startup, uh, you need uh, that kind of mental release. So we were talking a little bit earlier about kind of we're in this golden era of television sure. um, and there are these incredible like dramas and we were talking about Stranger Things and all these shows, they're just awesome. Um, but I need something kind of light. So I've been watching, and most of my office is currently obsessed with The Good Place, mm -hmm. which is Ted Danson and... Uh, Ted Danson, that's it. I was trying to think of who the actor Yeah, exactly. Ted it. Danson, right, from Cheers. Yeah. Uh, and Kristen Bell. Okay. Um, is it on Netflix, or...? or is uh, it's it's a cable show, but it's, um, it, it is streamed on Netflix. Okay. So it's on it's Netflix. streaming, I think, on Netflix, um, but I think it's from, like, TBS or something. It's not mm. from a channel that you associate with, like, really great stuff, but it's clever... Uh, the, the dialogue's good, the production quality's good, it's got some really interesting plot twists, it's a unique premise, but it's light and it's fun and it's entertaining, but yeah. without being a bad laugh track sitcom. It's always said before, if you like Six Feet Under, if you like Pushing Daisies, uh, and I know the quirky stuff that came out sort of around 10 years ago, then it's, that's probably for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a little less kind of like post 9-11 grit that everything seems to have these days, and so yeah, shows like... Um, the Good Place and Librarians, it's a bit more kind of light-hearted and a bit more kind of still have value dramatically, but don't have to shove it down your throat every five seconds, you know? It's, yeah. I also just finally uh, started watching Parks and Rec. <laughs> about, Parks and Rec is awesome. <laughs> and a little bit of a backlog going, because um, I think it, it went off the air like three years ago, maybe, or something like that. Not um, sure. But uh, yeah, that one's good too. Falls Bro in that same category. Brooklyn Nine Nine was one night. I was one night. I was just sitting around and I was flipping through television, through the channels. Not you know streaming. You know being the old guy, not streaming. Actually flipping through channels. <laughs> and it just came on. I was eating dinner or something like that, and I was laughing hysterically at this show. And so I was like, yeah, hey, you know, this is a show that I guess I can start watching. So it's similar to kind of Parks and Rec. Just start watching this dumb network show because that's the other thing is you don't really watch network shows anymore now with these you know mm. streaming kind of shows these you know movies and everything like that that you have it's kind of tough to keep up with 24 episodes in a season of yeah. you know your the office you know friends stuff like that you know your traditional kind of old school way yeah speaking of the office actually i finally watched the it crowd for the first time have you ever heard of that i first it was the it crowd yeah, crowd yeah. <laughs> it's the it crowd it crowd yeah. Yeah. i don't know um never even heard of it very famous British show, but yeah, similar kind of... Oh, it's a British show. British yeah, there's a reason why I've never heard of it. There's a reason why I've never heard of it, but uh, yeah, finally actually get it now. I spent years and years saying I hated it, but for some reason something's flicked now and actually quite okay. When, like, The Office, they put Americans in there, then maybe I'll go and I'll maybe, check yeah, it out yeah, yeah, until yeah. then, you know? Until yeah. then, we're just going to assume it's, like, Faulty Towers or uh, yeah. Blackadder, you know? True, just kind yeah. Of, yeah. <laughs> I get enough Brits in my life as it is on a day-to-day -day <laughs> basis, you know? It's, uh, 
But that is actually funny. The end of the fucking world that uh, the Netflix show that I love that is a British show too. Yeah, but, exactly. uh, but that's a dark show that yeah, very yeah. tense. <laughs> we the levity. Exactly. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming in, uh, giving your insights, um, and uh, yeah, we appreciate it as always. Yeah, thanks yeah, for having me in, guys. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you guys next week. See you later.